Hello. Hey, Kai. How's it going? All right. I saw from your Twitter account you are processing film tonight. I was, uh, and then I had uh, this terrible thing happened, which hasn't happened to me before. Uh, the first batch came out and um, was in the wash, and I was I was rinsing out the uh, tanks, getting ready to do my second batch of film, and all of a sudden the water pressure dropped to almost nothing mm. while my first batch of film is just like one minute in the wash. I was like, well, you know what the hell's going on? I ran down to the basement and my landlord un- unknown to me was swapping out to a new boiler <laughs> doing and, it yeah. at night on a weekend. Yep. So he was filling, it was filling up the tank. And so that's why the pressure dropped. But then of course now the pressure came back and the water is this nasty Brown as things oh. flush through the system. Oh, so you you're gonna have to wait probably till tomorrow or something. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't do any more film tonight. I gotta wait. But of course, I have like I've, I'd already put film on the reels that's in oh. another tank ready to go. So, anyways, that had never <laughs> that was an unexpected thing. Oh yeah, and uh, it made me think of uh, Tom, who's just at the airport now, flying back from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Right was telling me about all of the water problems there. Even though Brazil has one of the largest, you know, natural water resources, the water doesn't get to Sao Paulo, and they sometimes are, go out without uh, water for 12 hours at a time. Oh, just because they haven't built the infrastructure? Yeah, exactly. So mm. if you're wealthy, you put a cistern on your roof that you pump with water all day long in case it goes out. It then made me think of, you know, what would make me one day have to switch away from shooting film and going digital and uh, no clean water would certainly be an issue. Right. I mean, yeah, everyone's worried about no film, but (laughs) I think no water would be a much bigger issue. So last night I was at Yola Monokov Dockton's book signing at ICP, um, which uh, is also part of a show that's up now, right? Yeah, she has a show at Rick Wester, which is on uh, West 26th Street. I don't know the exact number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's up for a little bit longer. <clears throat> but yeah, in conjunction with her first book. Also, uh, Arena Rozovsky was there at the, for the same event, right? For that's her right. second book, Island in My Mind, which are photographs from Cuba. Right. And, and Yola's book is The Nature of Imitation, which are photographs of both uh, birds that have been captured for uh, marking and release and also um, scenes uh, of the wild. So it's a kind of this comparison of, of artifice and natural and right, how, um, how things look, I guess, the way we uh, kind of expect them and then things look when we find them. Yeah. And uh, I had to run away from that because there was another book event <laughs> for another right. photographer I know, which is Gus Powell. And uh, JNL Books was having a lovely little sort of launch party um, uh, at a house in the Bowery for his new book, The Lonely Ones, which is the title, at least, is, and even the structure of the book is an homage to uh, William Steig book. I think it's Steig. Steig? Steig. I think it's William Steig book. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, called The Lonely Ones. But I, I didn't, I'd never seen that one before. I'd only seen uh, CDB and CDC, his little, like, beautiful little drawings with just uh, individual letters making out sentences and phrases. and um, But the lonely ones uh, are his drawings paired with these little short bits of dialogue. And so Gus Powell's book, you open up to a page and there's a short little line of a sentence, uh, like maybe it says, who's there with a question mark, and you fold out the page to reveal the photograph that that goes with. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. I mean, it can be 
you got to be very delicate with the book. It's not like a, you can't flip through it really quickly, no. but, <laughs> but the structure is, is, is quite nice. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for calling in. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, wait. I've got you have one, one more, more thing. <laughs> Please. So I saw on, at the most unexpected place ever, I saw the most technically beautiful, brilliant uh, photographs uh, that I'd seen in quite a while on Thursday night. And uh, the venue, to say how unexpected it was, was awake in Sunnyside, Queens, uh, for the mother of uh, my friend Jen. And we, I arrive and uh, not knowing what to expect. And her fiance Anthony, who's also a very good friend of mine, he is a stereo buff. He loves not stereo as in uh, the record players, but stereo as in stereo photography, and stereographs, and all stereographs that. and stereograms. Mm. And he found, or she had given him, these amazing stereo um, stereograms that were made with a realist Kodak realist camera for her mother's wedding. And this wedding photographer was some kind of genius because he photographed her in her Bronx apartment with the veil on and the light was incredible. And you could like mm. see through out the window to where there was um, hanging on the line where, uh, you know, clothes hanging on the line in the background and a car with fins on it parked on the street. Wow. And of course, all shot with um, uh, Kodachrome. Mm. And so the colors, it's 1957, but the colors are just crazy and brilliant. And it was so sharp. And you could just, the, 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 one, the one that really killed me was her standing mm. looking in a handheld mirror while in front of another mirror, like at a bureau, and everything lines up so it comes right back to the lens. And it was just incredible. I mean, these stereograms, I, I guess it was the equivalent in the 50s. That you'd get someone to shoot stereo, and now you know you'd get someone to shoot it with a drone or something to fly over your right. wedding. But it was like the high tech thing. Oh, that's wild. Well, is, I mean, not to be morbid or anything, is there any chance your friends will want to share these photos? He's going to. I mean, he's definitely going to try to scan some stuff in, and he's going to try to track down the photographer. He has the name of the photographer, and he's curious to see if there's more. Because, mm. I mean, of course, a lot was like just flash, but he did some uh, natural light exposure. Like the one I was talking about where you can see out the window to the clothesline. It's she's standing there and with the veil and the light coming through the window in the most delicate way. And then the 3d, you just get to like see every little wrapping of, you know, the way that veil is crushed in on itself is just how, incredible. How were they shown at the wake? Uh, he, uh, Anthony brought his, uh, stereo realist viewer that you just put up to your eyes and you press down. It's, it's kind of like a view master, but, mm -hmm. You know, it's like a little uh, Bakelite, uh, beautiful little object. So you put in one at a time and press the button down and get to see them. Wow. And everyone was going nuts for them. You know, he was like, kept showing around. And you, yeah, it was a great, great way to, I guess, see her right. when she was young. Yeah. Right. No, it sounds like it was a real event and a nice way to remember somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Photography. Um, memories. Right. That's right. All right. That's all I've got. I just wanted to remember to mention that. No, that, that was, was great. Incredible. Thank you. All right. Let's start the show. Sounds good. Were you here since I air-conditioned the place? Yes, and it's on right now, and we can barely hear it, which is fantastic. Yeah, I could turn it off. No, it's good. 
That's why, right. that's why you have to lean in so close to these mics. They don't pick okay. things up. Well, here we are. We're in Tom Roma's studio out in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, welcome to my studio. <laughs> and we're here with Kai McBride. Hi, Kai. Hello, Michael. So you've been out here in Brooklyn for how long? Do you uh, mean? In this house. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, let me see if I get... I bought it in 1977, but took a little work to move in and I, I moved in early uh early 78 I think but it could be it could be that I bought it in 76 I don't really remember <laughs> I have to but at least 77 uh, 77 is definitely in there somewhere and and over all those years you've really made it a very functioning place right you've 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 added rooms you've done all kinds of things and and your darkroom has been here uh for how long um, let's see. I guess here's another thing. I'm guessing now. Let me think. Oh boy, I I the darkroom is on the third floor, and it was originally in a bedroom downstairs on the second floor. But I added the third floor probably 1979. I mean, I got in here and I I built a darkroom. I got working it was before oh, maybe 19. I know when it is. It's definitely. 1980. It's 1980 because I made all the prints for Brooklyn Gardens in the old darkroom, and that was 1980. And then the prints for Serious Studies, which was 1982, were made up here. So where, where was the old darkroom? Um, on the second floor, the, the front bedroom. It became my bedroom. Then later it became John Carlo's room. Now it's on his sewing room. Where would you work? Where were you working then before you had this house? Before you had the dark room? Oh, that's another one of those things. I was living in a furnished room, in uh, what we called back then a boarding house. I I paid by the week, and I had uh, at the at that time I had a factory in what's now called Dumbo, but it wasn't called Dumbo. It was. Uh, Brooklyn. I don't even know yeah, what when, we got. What neighborhood we, was that? Well, yeah. we call it. Uh, it was Vinegar Hill or Brooklyn Navy Yard. You know, vicinity. But it's it's exactly in the heart of Dumbo. It was at York and Washington Street. I had four thousand square feet to manufacture automobile electrical parts, and since all of my workers were um, women, I hired experts in the field, and they were all women very old. They were all in their 70s. And um, I busted up the men's room in the factory and I built my darkroom there. So that was my darkroom before here. I had a darkroom in the men's room of a building at York and Washington. <laughs> and, and I remember you telling me a funny story of that you put down pallets in there, right? Just yes. as the floor. And as you were in there working, you'd see rats like scuttling around <laughs> yeah. underneath the pallets. In, in fact, yeah, they are. They call them pallets now, but there's actually a distinction. They were skids. Uh, pallets have horizontal wood on the top and bottom, and skids have two vertical elements with uh, just wood across, and I use skids to raise the floor and to run the plumbing underneath it to get it up to the sink. I thought it was very clever, but the way I knew they were rats is all of a sudden I see something whipping around through the, the, the slats. It was the rat tail <laughs> sticking up. <laughs> and uh, and I had to go back then. I worked at night. I always did all my work at night. I had to go back the next night. And, of course, uh, I was terrified. But what was I going to do? 
So that's what I did before this. I, I built dark rooms everywhere I went. I moved around a lot. And I was always building a dark room because that's every photographer I knew back then had a dark room. That's part of being a photographer. Everyone did their own work. It wasn't special. Was was the factory the, the first sort of enterprise or, or work you did after Wall Street? No, I, I left Wall Street. I was there from uh, 1967 June 1967, to September of 1971. And I went from there to Pratt Institute, where I was hired as a darkroom technician slash teaching assistant slash do everything, you know, that the faculty wasn't doing to keep the program there. And it was a great tradition. There were there were fantastic guys that were there before me, a photographer named John Millicender, another one named... Dennis Barner, and they were they were amazing guys who were serious about photography, serious about music, serious about everything. So I entered I entered this world at Pratt and that pre-existed people that loved what was called photography. There were, there were no divisions. It was all photography. One of, but a, a funny story about my first day, my first day on the job is an enormous pay cut, as you could imagine. But on my first day uh, on the job, John Millicender was training me. He was leaving, and you know I was coming in. So I thought a reasonable question was, "What are you doing now?" You know, you, you quit the job. He had had it, I think, for about three years, four years. And I said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "I don't know. There was no other job waiting. Teaching was brand new, very, very new field. Teaching photography." And uh, schools were just building photography departments. It's shocking when you when you look at them. Almost everything was Vietnam era. GIs on the GI Bill coming out and all of a sudden going to all these schools. It, you can see the same with School of Visual Arts. Uh, I mean, why name names? All of them. They, right. were all, they were all just coming up. The Pratt Institute Department, three years before I got there, I think had two or three people on the faculty, and the year I got there was up to maybe 15. Mm -hmm. So it, everything just blew out. In fact, they needed me because they built a, a satellite darkroom classroom in the basement of a, a building, a, a, a new building right on, on DeKalb Avenue that they call Pratt Studios. You know, I never really thought of that before. When at the end of World War II, when there was a, a rise in art schools, it was all graphic advertising design and Cartooning, right? Yeah, and yeah. I want. Do you think the the Vietnam War itself made photography more popular? Speaking of photography and popular pop culture, what people commonly credited back then was a movie called Blow Up. Uh, Blow Up. All of it. You talk to the old timers at School of Visual Arts, and they say, "Oh my God, Blow Out!" Blow Up came out, and all of a sudden, they had to offer many more classes. They were looking for people to teach. But the way the war was covered on television, it's, it's tricky to say it, Michael. It's tricky because at that same moment, Life Magazine, Look Magazine were dying. So still photography becomes popular. Coincidentally, still photography has something to do that's serious coincidental with it being less useful for disseminating uh, uh, news from the front, let's say. 
Yeah, especially with with video, right? Yeah, even film. These guys had sixteen millimeter cameras. They're they're crawling around. You know, of of course there were, there was amazingly, what would you say? Even brave. There were these guys had a lot of commitment to go in the field and make the still photographs that they made. But the Vietnam War was the first war that you could uh, watch while you were having dinner. Everyone knows that. People were watching television in the kitchen or at the in the dining room, and the the war came on. You got to see the news right then and there. You didn't have to wait for the newsreel as in World War II to see a moving image, nor did you have to wait for a picture magazine to come out. And the images were were much more graphic than anything we tend to see today from from recent wars. Well, that's this. They made it illegal, you know that. You know, yeah. beginning with not allowing any photographs of flag-covered caskets right. and all that. But yeah, that's information that was put out there to, I think, as a, a kind of straw dog. People were up in arms about that, but that's the least of it. Mm. That's the least mm-hmm. of what's not shown or not reported, including embedding reporters and right. photojournalists. But that's not to say that individual photographers weren't trying, but photographers don't control the outlet, so it doesn't matter what, what picture you make, but there are still people, I mean, till this day, that are, that are trying, and you have to tip your hat to them. Uh, photography just doesn't have that role in people's consciousness anymore. Plus, they're flooded with photographs because of uh, iPhones. I mean, mm-hmm. the internet is something, I guess, but the internet is old-fashioned, I think, compared to iPhones, Instagram, whatever else. I don't, I don't know what else to call it. I don't have an iPhone. <laughs> but I know people are looking at pictures constantly. Right. So we were, we were kind of working backwards towards uh, the beginning of when you got into photography. I, I, know, I know we know the story, Kai and I, how you got into photography. I don't know. Is that, is that public knowledge, how you got into photography? I, I don't know anything about the public. I'm usually, <laughs> I'm home a lot. I don't, I, I don't think you, I mean, he has discussed it on, in interviews and oh, yeah, talks exactly. and other, and even other podcasts, but and that doesn't I, mean that. I don't knows. even, I don't know if I remember. And, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not shy about contradicting myself. I, there's no reason for me to remember things exactly. And, no. And no. I, I always, oh, no. The, the thing that's on record is the funny story I tell that yeah. I I got involved with the photography by accident. It was a car accident. But that, right. it's actually true. All of it is. <laughs> I, mean, I think I've already contradicted myself in this podcast alone <laughs> in the last 10 episodes. <laughs> well, why not? I don't know yeah. why people are so upset about contradiction. <laughs> Uh, nothing wrong with it, and I, I'm not in. I'm not in control, and nor is anyone of uh, my memory. I, <laughs> I, uh, I remember things, and then later I, th- I think, well, there was more to that story. But I, didn't, I, I just, I don't always have access to all the information. Right, and and you never know when you're when you're going to be asked, or in what context you're going to be asked. Yeah, and by the just- way, by the way, when I when I started my life in photography, I was still at Wall Street still um, with Pershing and company. And uh, I wanted to go to Vietnam and take pictures. That's what I want. I want wow. to be a war photographer. All right, I, I met people very early on and I saw photographs that were pretty amazing and confusing to me. Mm. Uh, confusing. and I think smart people and are inspired by being confused. 
Yeah, I remember I'm here the story of uh John Tchaikovsky talking about seeing the Walker Evans book and being like, What is this? These are all sharp. It doesn't look like art, you know, what and being confused by that and revisiting it. American and, photographs. Yeah. He was he was directed to uh go and look at American photographs. But the, you know, that only makes sense. You're gonna you know I'm sure there are there are brilliant people who could understand Bach or, or Mozart and first listen, but the truth is there's a lot to know before you could penetrate really dense uh, artistic material. And people like uh, Winogrand, the hell did I know? To, the, what did I live through that, that would have prepared me for understanding even a percentage of what those pictures were about when I first saw them? And it was the animals, right, that you first saw? I first saw one photograph in a, you know, a, what do you call it, popular culture photo magazine. It could have been pop photography or American photography or modern photography. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a, a little blurb about the book. About, it had just come out. Check the dates. It comes out in 1970. I get to see they reproduce a picture of the European brown bear and... I'd been pouring through, I was recovering from this uh, brain injury, and I was pouring through these magazines at uh, uh, the local public library that had them grouped in yearly, 12 issues at a time, mm. bound with twine. So I worked backwards, forwards. I, so I was almost finished with looking at all these magazines, maybe five or six years of magazines. And here's a, a current one, and there's this picture. And I... I, I loved photography. I loved pictures of uh, pretty girls and uh, children smelling flowers and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Right. The, the, the kind and, of photography they would show in magazines is, you know, it's, this is how to make a photograph. Yeah. This oh, is, yeah. Right. I, I was, right. listen, I was all in. I, I, that's what I thought photography was. Then I see this photograph. It was reproduced. Now, who knows? I remember it being very small, maybe a couple of inches across by a couple of inches high. And I thought, what is this? Anyone could, it's not, I, I just didn't get it. But it was, it was announcing this book. And on a facing page, there was a little piece about, in, in, in a similar format, about a bookstore uh, in the photo district called the Laurel Book Center, and they specialized in photo books. Well, my mother was waiting outside in the car. I don't know what she was doing. Probably just smoking Salem cigarettes. And... Uh, our I, first sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Our first podcast sponsor, yeah. Salem City. Yeah. Very refreshing. So smooth. So smooth. Right. Yeah. Mental. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. However, it takes me back. <laughs> well, well uh, I went out and I said, I, I wrote down the address and I said, take me to you know 34th Street and uh, around Macy's and we, you know, Herald Square. And we, she drove me right there. And... Uh, it was great because in those days, there were very few photo books, unlike today. And they, they it was before the big chains, and books were not remaindered the way they are now. So it when, when I get there, so it's 1970, Helen Levitt's 1965 book, A Way of Seeing, is brand new on the shelf. It's just sitting there. Now, I know stories about much older books. Lee Friedlander went to a bookstore and, and uh, bought a, the 1930 
at Jay Book in the 1960s. That was you know 30 years later. He's still able to buy a brand new book. But I, I remember pretty clearly that I bought a way of seeing. I thought they were pictures from Brooklyn. That's probably why I bought it. And it was very cheap. I bought the animals that would cost practically nothing. It was under $5, I'm sure. I bought the Americans uh, that I still have. And I bought the Concerned Photographer, which uh, I also still have. That was the, the, uh, the Magnum book. And I, I loved, that was my favorite book, by the way. It's a, a lot of different photographers. I loved it. I studied it. I poured over it. But it wasn't, it wasn't the book I wanted to buy. I wanted to buy a book called uh, Mirror of Venus by Wingate Payne. And it was a giant book of nudes. <laughs> but my mother was waiting in the car. And I was too embarrassed. I was 19 years old. I was too embarrassed to, uh, you know, because I, I was afraid. Not that she was interested, but I, I feared she'd want to see. And it wasn't a book I thought I could hide in the bag. It was so big. Or even get into the house. <laughs> So the book, I, I should buy that one of these days. But uh, I don't know why I haven't. But um, so I bought the books that would, you know, pass the Pope's scrutiny, you know, and, uh, and that's what I did. And that was, the be that was the beginning of it. I can't say that I looked at the Winogrand book a lot. I can't say that I got it. I can't, I... I ended up taking night classes at a place called the Jermaine School of Photography, and I met great people there. One, one in particular, a guy named uh, Alan Newberg, and Alan said, "You know, I've got to show you other photographers. You've got to see more than this." And uh, we went out and photographed together, and he really opened my eyes. And he got me to a place called the Educational Alliance. We both quit Jermaine School of Photography. I'd say more than half the students there were veterans. Uh, who you know were taking classes under the GI Bill? Not that there was anything wrong with that, but I realized I didn't. I wasn't going to be a war photographer. I didn't want to do commercial photography, although I learned all that stuff. I learned all the lighting. I have a, a traditional mid twentieth century photography uh, education with a, with a lot of funny stories. Then I went to the Educational Alliance and I met other people. I met a Another guy named Alan Nysola who's taking classes there. I wonder what ever happened to these guys. You know, I changed my name at some point so they would never even know I was the, the kid, you know, that they met. I was still a teenager. But um, and there I met Arthur Freed who was teaching and was also teaching at Pratt. And that's how I ended up at Pratt. He, he uh, sent somebody looking for me. I disappeared. And he sent someone looking for me. I didn't have a phone and they found me and offered me this job, and I thought, why not? I, I assumed when I quit the job on Wall Street that I would just take a few weeks off. I never had a vacation, and then go back, but that didn't happen. I mean, there are a lot of other factors. I, I moved out of my mother's house, and oh gosh. It's, I mean, it's, it's tedious, to be, to be uh, honest. But where am I in all this? I, it, was, it became so complicated. Everything did. Photography was much more complex than I realized. It, I, could, I could say that I made a mistake 
uh, quitting my job on Wall Street. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea. I was way out of my depth. I. It would be just as easy for me to say, I'm leaving Wall Street so I could become an astrophysicist. <laughs> I didn't know the first damn thing about that either. And there's no reason to think that photography, the way it can be practiced, is any less baffling to people who don't know about it as uh, astrophysics. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say, though, that you know when you did make that decision to leave and to pursue photography, you imagined that there was this serious world going on that it was there was something equivalent to the seriousness you were putting into being a wall street trader that yeah. there was some you know it wasn't the commercial thing it, it you know if even if it was going to be being a war photographer or being something else that uh, you know, something on the realm of uh, poetry and, you know, Robert Frost and all these things, that there was something to do, to pursue that was on the level of, of something great. Even if it was misunderstood, you still imagine there was yes, some sort of that's world. Yes, you're absolutely right. But there's another element that uh, where I was, I, I imagine that, but I also imagined you know, I started this Wall Street job with a summer job and never left. And there, you know, there's there's a ladder that you can climb, and it's a complete, honest back then meritocracy. If you were good, you rose. Didn't matter what color your blood was or what your degree was. You performed on the trading floor, you went up. That's all. And of course, money was the thing that mediated. Going up meant more money. You know, there wasn't a, a pat on the head you, you, or, a, or a medal. You got more money. I had the misfortune of uh, reading the James Agee essay in uh, A Way of Seeing and then going back to Laurel Book Center and buying The Photographer's Eye. I don't think I bought it the first time. And I thought when I left, there was a similar structure, that there was a way where I could be judged by my actions. That if I, when I was on Wall Street those years, I never took a vacation. I worked an average of 80 hours a week. And I was good at it, you know, frankly. But I enter a world where you know, there's, there's no measure. It's completely subjective. Much more cronyism. <laughs> Much more. I mean, it's crazy. Completely crazy. Yeah. It, was, it was, I entered a topsy-turvy world with no clear path. So I got there in 1971, and I quickly learned that there was something called the New York State Council for the Arts Grant. So uh, I applied for it in, I guess, in 72, and I got it in 1973. And I thought, well, this is easy. You know, you, you, know, you get recognized, and uh, little did I know, <laughs> you, know, you then fall off the map. But the one thing I have to say that was also a complete accident, I don't know. I've, t I've tried to talk about this, but it's such foolishness that, I mean, it's, it's a good thing that I, I never get embarrassed. Anyone should be embarrassed. When I left Wall Street to photograph, and then I, you know, I, was, I was home alone, pretty much drunk for two weeks before they found me and offered me the job, the thing that was very clear to me was um, what I wanted to do was photograph. Now, you have to understand, I didn't want to photograph 
in India. I didn't want to photograph uh, um, California. I I didn't want to photograph you know whatever plantations in the American South. I wanted to photograph, and I was in Brooklyn, and right from the beginning, I um, either drove to a neighborhood or walked out my front door with my camera on my shoulder and uh, photographed. My book from uh, 2014, The Waters of Our Time, the cover picture is from the first roll of film I ever shot. I mean, I when I look through the work I've done, it, it's I'm, I, I'm kind of amazed. What is it, a lack of imagination? Or, I mean, I've never had wanderlust. I've never, I think every place is the same. I, I really do. I, why, why, how, how could one place be better than another? All right, if you want to do alpine skiing, Brooklyn could be difficult, but you could cross-country ski when it's snowing. I mean, you can't do everything here, but almost, almost everything. You had a, a few ventures outside of Brooklyn, but right, for the most part, um, your photographs come from Brooklyn. Three. Three, three times I... Uh, Strayed. Well, it, it, <laughs> well I, you know what? I, would, I, would, I, would, I, I wouldn't call it straying because that assumes that, uh, that I didn't know where I was going. But I, what I felt all three times was called. I thought mm. I was... I was, uh, that there was something that I actually, that I would be better off doing to inform my life. Um, and felt that there was something related, some something that, you know, it's like having something caught in the back of your throat, <clears throat> trying to clear your throat. There was something I could do to kind of clear that out. So it, I could say this, I haven't been promiscuous about it. Um, yeah, I mean, Sicilian Passage in particular was a clearing of the throat, right? Well, that, that's that's a weird thing. That's <laughs> I did that. I I went to Sicily to get away from New York and to I I my uh, the way I thought of photography, I was so reverent of the photographers that. Uh, not only came before me, frankly, but even my my peers, I thought were doing such good work. You know, I I I just I felt that I had to physically remove myself. I had to uh, get the hell out, and so I bought a one way ticket to Sicily with John Tchaikovsky's blessing, and uh, stayed in bed for about a month before I was actually able to photograph it. I was very depressed. It was 125 degrees when I got there. Right. There was a huge heat wave. But I have to admit, you know, I'd gone to Sicily uh, four or five years before, and I barely photographed. I don't think I shot two rolls of film. So I knew that I was likely to fail, but I, I had to get away. I had to save myself. It was, you know, every time I saw something, I saw someone in the world... I was actually seeing someone else's photograph. That's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't know I'd keep going back for 10 years. But it was an, it was a, a incredibly inefficient process. And I've allowed myself that. I've allowed myself my life. I've allowed myself to live my life. I've never been in a rush to have more photographs or more good photographs. Or I mean, you mentioned the house. 
it took a long time to build it out. I've more than doubled the size of the house. Right. Yeah. That, that actually, we got we got off that a little bit. That's where we were yeah. going. Right. Yeah. But I was never in a rush. I only I only added a room when I needed a room. If I didn't need a room, the house <laughs> was fine. You said something um, interesting just a second ago. You said with John Tchaikovsky's permission, you went off to Sicily. What did you mean by that? Well, the the thing is, John started collecting my work in 1977. And that was uh, that was very important to me. I'm not gonna. It meant everything. I. It's not that I was in danger of quitting or anything, but you know, we all have an audience in the back of our mind, and uh, mine was John. I wanted, I wanted to make photographs that, uh, well, especially. It's not so much the photographer's eye, which is a great book. Uh, probably misled some people, but the clearest the clearest of all is looking at photographs. And I wanted to make photographs that John could look at and say things like that about my pictures, about the world that, you know, the four lines of the photograph, my photograph made. I wanted to measure up. And when he started, you know, when I brought work up and he bought some pictures the first time I brought work up, and we had a long talk. He wanted to see me. It's another cuckoo story. But the fact is, I subjected myself to uh, the, the opinions of others. So three people weighed in on my planning to go to Sicily. One of them was um, Gary Winogrand, who said, go, get out of here. You're right. Uh, one was Todd Pabadroge, who said, don't do it. But Todd also thought I shouldn't buy this house because it was in Brooklyn. Everyone was living in in Soho. You had to go to Manhattan, at least you know somewhere in Manhattan. That it was crazy to live in Brooklyn. But Todd said don't, and I think he was right for the reason. I, I don't mean to say to be critical of him. His reasons were were true. So I ended up calling John at moment, going up to see him, and. Uh, Saying this, this is what I'm I'm planning to do. I had I had published a little limited edition book called uh, Brooklyn Gardens, and I used pages from. Uh, we didn't bind all the pages; they were all original prints. I matted the pages from that book and uh, applied for the Guggenheim with it. And I knew John really liked the book, but he didn't. He was on sabbatical when MoMA bought it. It's in the MoMA collection. So he, when he came off his sabbatical, he was living in, in France. He he uh, got in touch with me about it, and we talked. So I I told him my plan. I said I want to photograph in Sicily like this. It was just that boring, stupid. I mean, some people <laughs> have written great Guggenheim proposals. Mine. <laughs> Mind you, the clumsiest language. And anyway, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> well, so John, John just John looked at me and he nodded. He kept nodding. Well, he had just come back from uh, being in France. I and mm. I don't think I thought of that till just now. Mm. So he knew sometimes you have to get away, and I'd never gone anywhere. I'd never. Um, but as I recall from the story, you were also approaching him with some anxiety about the trip, right? And what the hell you were actually going to photograph. No, that was another... That was later? Is, uh. So after I got the Guggenheim Fellowship, and then, uh, so now I have to go. Right. And, and in the meantime, I never thought I was going to get it. 
I mean, I didn't. I not because I was humble, but the odds are against it. So you have to, you know, go about your life. It's there's actually a story that connects the house and Guggenheim and all that. I applied for a, a national endowment for the arts fellowship, and I. Through the grapevine, I even knew someone who's a big shot who's on the committee who I knew liked me a lot. And I I felt pretty sure that I was going to get it. And I didn't. And uh, I felt pretty bad about it. I, you know, I thought, well, this is, you know, I, I thought I didn't deserve it. I mean, that's really what the thought was. So I was living in the boarding house and... Um, Crazy thing happened. Uh, I don't know if anyone's even going to understand the story. In my factory, I got a knock on the door. I was barely making ends meet. An old man came to me, and he had a government contract for these electrical parts, and uh, he'd buy them for me for five cents each if I could make them. Five cents profit. He'd supply all the raw materials. These are the wires? These were battery cables government for for the uh, military. So... uh, I ended up doing that, working with molten lead and acid and wire. To make a long story short, I made $5,000 at a nickel apiece. Wow. And so I thought I'm, I could give myself my own fellowship. I could do anything. I can go anywhere. Not, I didn't have Sicily on my mind at the time. I could do what other photographers do. And instead, I bought this house with the money. Hmm. I paid $14,500. I put 5000 down and had a $9,500 mortgage. <laughs> Because I thought that's how I could be a better photographer. I could have, I don't have to go back to the factory. I still had the factory, but I don't have to go back to the factory at night with the rats. And I always had to work for a living, but there was always enough time to photograph. So I'm going to back up. When I was at Pratt, I had moved out of my mother's house and, oh, it's a crazy story, but I had to borrow some money and then someone else loaned me the money to pay it back and then I got I got broken into and robbed. So I owed two people the same $200, about $400. So I had to get a night job and I got a night job in a wedding photography photo mounting plant. I don't think I ever knew this. Yeah, yeah this is a great, oh, is a great a, story I, with the wood. I yeah. ended up getting fired from that job. It's the only job I ever got fired from. And you were hired for your artistic potential. Right? Yeah, when they found out that I was uh, I was working at an art school, they said, oh, they come on in. We mounted wedding pictures to wood and then carved the wood and stained it to look like driftwood. <laughs> <laughs> sprayed polyurethane on them, did all that stuff. I, I can't believe you don't teach this. <laughs> <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> um, I, I mean, listen, I have a lot of funny stories, uh, but I would, I'd work at Pratt. I got off at five. I'd photograph on the way home, sometimes have enough time to uh, develop the film, go to my night job, get off at one, two, three, you know, because you could work until you wanted to leave. They, they worked all, all the way through and got paid by, by the hour. I'd go home, the film was dry, make contact sheets or make contact sheets from the day before or make, knock off a few prints. I had a beautiful little darkroom in this place. And then go to my, my day job. I, I don't understand people who say they have no time to photograph. You photograph whenever you want. Who's, who's stopping you? No one told me not to do it. I just thought that's how you do it. I thought you photograph the way you go to work. Right. I, 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 that. I've always had wor- good work habits. I could say that. I've always 
taking care of what needs to be taken care of. So I got fired from the job because it, there was a machine. It was a huge electric motor. In fact, it was a DC motor. It had to be converted, but like a five-horsepower monster of a motor, as big as a car engine. And on it was a super sharp conical uh, cutting bit that was spinning at, you know, 1700 rpm or something spinning 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 and i was the job was to look at the picture and carve away at the inessential uh parts to take it from being a rectangle to something mm. more organic yes more <laughs> organic looking but my big they started becoming dissatisfied with my work because you know, I was trying to knock off a lot of pieces. And one was this there's a classic wedding photography uh picture of the the bride who, you know, was assumed to be smaller than the the giant, you know, groom looming over you'd had that's the only way you make this picture, have this giant guy looming over and they're both holding the the left hand of the bride and staring at the uh, wedding ring and the engagement ring. They're both, so could you imagine it from the left looking over to the right and they're looking and I cut the hand right off. <laughs> it was gone. So I got fired for not being sensitive to, in my, in my, uh, but you know, I love that job. I one of the reasons I loved the job, there was a guy working there who loved Cat Stevens. I never mm. even heard of Cat Stevens, so he would play Cat. So I loved it. I, my memory of it is the music. Isn't that yeah. crazy? <laughs> yeah, I've actually had a few jobs where I, there was nothing about the work that interested me, but I mm. liked being there. I liked. I used to press cosmetics in my friend's garage for his father. His father was a chemist. He was starting a cosmetics company. Huh. And th the work was, there was nothing to the work. It was just lowering a lever, you know, every five seconds. And, but Listen, that, yeah. my, my factory was all piecework. When I was a boy, we made, my family made costume jewelry at home. Uh, and we got paid by the piece. Yeah, yes. So my mother yes. had, there were six kids in the family that I was adopted into, and there were, uh, we all we all sat there, and uh, I assume we did our homework, who remembers that, but we all strung beads. We oh. were bead stringers. Yes. Uh, my mother went around giving us the string with the clasp and collecting it when we were done, and hooking it onto this kind of coat hanger thing to, uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with work. No. Nothing wrong with no. that. I had a lot of jobs. I did a lot yeah. of crazy jobs. I forgot how we got here. But so to, to go circle all the way back to John and Sicily, the day before I took off to Sicily, I hadn't even packed, but John and I had lunch at the Sentry uh, um, Club. John was a member of the Sentry Club. And... We got pretty loaded, you know, because you drink first, then your table is ready, and you go from the sitting room to the... And we were sitting there, and we were drinking and eating, and I said, John, I, I've got to tell you, I never really wanted to go to Sicily. I, I don't know what to do there. The last time I was there, I did nothing. I, there's nothing there. There's nothing. So, now remember, he loved Brooklyn Gardens. He said... Or at least I believe he said. And as I said, we were both pretty well uh, lubricated at this point. He said, when you go there, introduce yourself to people and tell them 
that you're a photographer from America and you're there to photograph gardens. And then when they let you in, do whatever you want. It made no sense. There's no gardens there. But, you know, he's right. All you need is an excuse to get out of bed. Just if you can get out of bed, that's a start. Yeah. <laughs> then you've got to have your camera with film and everything else. I actually got that from you a little bit. And I, I tell it to my students. If someone says, please photograph me, or yes, you can photograph me, you get to do whatever you want at that point. Yeah. Right? You get to yeah. really direct them. Well, things have changed. Uh, for photographers because of, you know, iPhones. And it used to be that if you photographed someone, there was at least a discussion about giving them a photograph, uh, having an opportunity to give one. Most people didn't really want it, but they, there was a discussion about it. But now with these, uh, you know, iPhones and digital photography, etc., everyone has enough pictures of themselves. So if someone says... Yes, now it has to do much more with the relationship than it has to do with any confusion about a service that you could provide them, which I think is quite liberating. Now, in my my new project, I just used the word I despise. New? I don't know. Project. Project. Oh, <laughs> I don't like project. Everything is a project now. It's another. It's another word. It's like love that means nothing, because we apply it to too many things. But this book that's coming out uh, later in October, every every photograph uh, with a person in it is the result of a conversation about what I really wanted to do, what what I was, you know, working towards. You know, not hoping, but working, putting myself out there. And of course, that meant people had to put themselves out there. And that's the, that's the deal now. We're all so isolated in between. You know, we, I, I mentioned Helen Lovett and her, her landmark, I mean, absolute monumental book, uh, A Way of Seeing. If you ask Helen, uh, why just stop doing that? She said television. All of a sudden, kids stayed home and watched television. Uh, an, another good answer is uh, air conditioning. In the summer, people are in. It's cooler inside. It used to be. You look at these Helen Levitt pictures. All the windows are open in the tenements. People are hanging out the window just so they could breathe. It's stifling. All right, sleeping in their fire escapes. Yeah, and that, you know, that great Ouija picture. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can only photograph what you can see. Now, sometimes, in order to see something, you have to do more than just wander down the street. You have to put yourself in a position where the world has an opportunity to reveal something of itself to you, whether it's... Uh, going to a place where people are doing something or going to a place where, I mean, everyone knows that. That's why everyone gets a camera and they run to the beach. You know, Walker Evans said, when asked about photography, he said, well, I, now I'm, I'm mangling it a little bit. He said, I don't, I don't, I can't say anything about what photography is, but I do know it has nothing to do with the beach. And, uh, and he was right. He was right. I mean, we're, you're trying to make something new, and the way you can make it new is to have something of a reason in your pictures, something of a reason that's your reason. You know, the, one of the things that has um, made it difficult for people to move forward, especially early on, probably less so now. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's the same. Is this expression the, the decisive moment? 
I'm sure it functioned for a while, but the question in a photograph isn't when, it's why. European brown bear. All right, I'm sure the bear wasn't biting that sign for a long time, but why? When I looked at that picture, I thought, why? Why am I? There's no pretty girl in that picture. You know, why? And that's that's the question I'm trying, my, I want my photographs to answer. I want people to look at my pictures. And the why is there. It's how I teach photography. It's all one, it's all one thing for me. But it's up to the photograph to, to answer the question why. When did you meet John Tchaikovsky? I met him by accident because John was a figure. Okay, now there, there weren't a lot of galleries around. Very few, as a matter of fact, in the 70s. But notably, uh, the Light Gallery was a, was a great gallery. And once in a while, uh, even an old-fashioned art gallery would show some Walker Evans or even some Ajay. But everyone, now here I am making this blanket statement, everyone. Everyone went to every opening. In fact, there were only photographers at these openings. We all got to know each other at first, maybe a nod, another time, you know, uh, a, a hello, and then eventually uh, go out for coffee if it was in the afternoon. There were a lot of afternoon openings. Or, um, or for drinks or dinner. And it, it, this whole community of, of people that wouldn't have known each other otherwise. So John would show up and walk around sometimes with his hands behind his back. But I actually had my first conversation with him when Todd Papadroge was doing uh, the Winogrand show, Public Relations. John was out of town, supposedly, but he wasn't. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't because uh, his car broke down. But Todd had to go up to the photography department, which is a very different physical space than it is now. Everything was much smaller and much more intimate. So Todd had to go up to fetch something. And John came out of a back room, and there he was. And it was an uncomfortable moment because I, because I wasn't meant to be there. Not that I was snuck in, but anyway, so uh, John and I were quickly introduced. And John said something about being there because his, he needs a, a car, his car broke down, and he's, you know, they were, he was on his way to go upstate where he had uh, a farmhouse. And I don't know why. I, you know, I know a lot about cars. I mean, I don't know why I asked. I said, well, what are you getting? <laughs> so he, he looked at me. He was kind of puzzled by the question. Like, it's none of your business. What am I, you know, what am I getting? And uh, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to get the same kind of car that uh, broke down, a Volvo. I said, why in the world would you buy a Volvo? And he said, well, and he had a, a, a reason for I said, what are you doing with this car? Where do you live? And he said, well, I, I only use it to go back and forth to the country. I said, well, that's the wrong car for that. And I said, the repairs are very expensive. I said, if the, the alternate ever goes, it's going to cost you whatever, $200. But if, you, you know, if, if it's an American car, you can get one for $35. He said, the alternate did go. You know, it did cost me. So, <laughs> you know, I was in the, I had the electrical Expertise, business yeah. at the time. I knew all about all that stuff. So he said, well, what should I get? So I told him exactly what to get and where to buy it. So a, a used car. I said, you know, this is how you buy it. Exactly. Anyway, at the opening, 
John, for public relations, John came up to me and said, uh, um, I hope you're coming to the party afterwards. This great guy, Pierre Laval, who is now a judge, but back then he was a, a district attorney, was hosting a party at his townhouse. And I was coming. Gary had arranged for me to go. And I and I was I was almost embarrassed to say I was going. So I didn't even think he would remember me from that conversation. But a few minutes later I saw John talking to some tall woman and looking over at me and I you know, <laughs> made me uncomfortable, of course. I'm trying to slip around. Uh Anyway, um, she walked up to me and introduced herself, and it was John's wife, Jill. And she said, I, I just want to meet you. You so impressed John. Uh, we're doing exactly what you said. Mm. They, bought, they, <laughs> they did exactly what I said. She said, thank you so much. And it was the beginning of a lovely, for me, relationship with Jill. My relationship with her was completely outside. We had our own reasons to get together, to have lunch. It had nothing to do with John. Um, <laughs> which was, you know, later was a pretty funny thing because she was involved with architecture and the Museum of the City of New York. And one day at an opening at MoMA, she asked me what I was doing and I told her about these prison pictures from Holmesburg that I'd done, and she said, I would love to see them. So I showed them to her, and she called me, and she said, would you mind if I showed John these pictures? And that's how that happened. I never would have thought to, you know, they would have been buried. And then John ultimately writes the cuckoo essay for the, <laughs> I'm really crazy, essay uh, um, for that book. And it was because of Jill. Isn't that, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. things it, happen in the most unpredictable way. In prison air. In prison air, yeah. 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 Mm. Which is a, another project he did outside of Brooklyn. But that isn't one of these things that I didn't want to do. I was, I was only in that prison because I was on set and I was supposed to be uh, an extra in, in a prison movie called Animal Factory directed by Steve Buscemi. And it didn't work out. It had to do with, it's called timing. It had to do with weather. The, it was an outdoor scene. It was a riot in the prison yard. Uh, I was completely miscast as a white supremacist. Um, no, I was supposed to be like, yes. you know, a, a maniac, you know, right. a, crazy, yes, yes. a crazy person. And there were racial tensions in the prison. So obviously I had to be on the white side of the, right. the equation. I know you've been a crazy guy. Were you also a drunk guy in a bar once? And a, yes, another, yes. Yeah, another yeah. girl, another planet. I don't planet. know where these came from. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why people see me like this. Um, well, I can't stretch myself. <laughs> anyway, while I was there, I saw the potential for something. The prison had just closed. And I, I made friends with the, the people, the, the senior correction officers who have to be on, on site. And I got permission for someone to photograph there. And I made some phone calls and I talked to some people and nobody wanted to do it. So I thought, well, giddy up. <laughs> uh, you were there. Yes. Yes, I you was. You were there. It was, uh, it was a mess. It, it, it was a frightening place. It really was. It was terrifying. Yeah. I, I walked into one of the um, cell blocks in between takes, and I, I, I walked into a I stepped into a cell. You have to step over a sill and, and bow your head even to get in. And I, I heard myself breathing, the echo. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I got choked up. I, mm-hmm. It was heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, everything about that place was heartbreaking, including the, the graffiti and the drawings and the, the, the artwork on the walls. Oh, and, yeah, the, the walls yeah. peeling, mm-hmm. trying to get away from... Well, you know, I, I did that, but I also did something that, um, that people, not many people have seen. I made a series of photographs for Steve my own versions of the film in stills. Where I for corralled, Steve Buscemi. Right. For Steve Buscemi. I, I corralled uh, the actors and did my versions of scenes that weren't being shot at that moment. It was Willem Dafoe and Will- Ethan Hawke, right? Not Ethan Hawke. Oh, Ethan Hawke was in Hamlet that oh, I was in. right. I was right. in Hamlet with him. Not that he knows that I was in it with him because <laughs> I... We, we, we nodded as I walked by him. Uh, in the movie, I mean, not in real life. He wouldn't even nod at me. Um, but uh, so you made those photos, the stills. But I am in a movie with Sarsgaard, uh, opening Tuesday called Experimenter. Oh, uh, and I have a speaking part. Where's that opening? Uh, New York Film Festival. Let's get back to the other thing for a second. So I made this series, and some of them appeared in American Filmmaker magazine, and. Uh, I was very happy with that. And I, I thought that's all I was going to do. And I ended up going back. I'm actually thinking of, uh, I, I only made one set of prints and I gave them to Steve. I'm thinking of going back in the darkroom and making a set just for the you know fun of it for a website or something. My, my funniest memory of being there is we're doing one of these very long exposures, standing in a puddle. Uh, in one of the cells, and they're, they're, the movie's going on, but then there's also some guy walks by in a hazmat suit and a mask, the full <laughs> gear, and he looks at us and saying, you guys should really be wearing a hazmat suit. <laughs> yeah, the EPA came in. Yes. The EPA came in. The film, what they did for the film is they, they renovated one whole cell block. It's a panopticon prison. So they their cell blocks radiate out from a central point. But we went in the, the ones that weren't dressed. Yeah, well, you're still alive. Stop, stop your whining. <laughs> yeah. All right, I have a little wheeze. But... Yeah, I felt like he was, you know, he was hinting at maybe some compensation there. Right. Like... Mesothemioma, or what yeah. is that called? Right? <laughs> yeah. Listen, you know, I, what I do um, does not require... A lot of deep thought, you know, <laughs> about the long-term consequences. I just do it. I worry about it later. That sounds like a perfect segue to talk about how you started teaching, because so far we've talked about these other jobs you had in photography, but not how you started teaching. So, you know, at Pratt, I was a teaching assistant, and I got to see how a lot of people did it. Well, look, anyone who knows anything about me knows I'm pretty critical about, I'm critical of everything, about everything. I question everything. But I wasn't critical of the way people taught because I didn't have any experience. I, I, I have a 10th grade education. I, I didn't go to college. I didn't. So whatever anyone was doing in my mind was how it was done, but it it didn't mean anything to me, frankly. So, um, and it was during... A, uh, the, do, do you mean the way they were teaching wasn't meaningful to you? The yeah. What, the what they were doing? Yeah. I, look, everyone was showing slides of... Yeah, back then, the slides were made from books. You photographed books. And so there were very few books. So there was a canon. And I was photographing in Brooklyn. I was... Looking at a, a flower pot made out of uh, 
shells and stones and concrete and they never showed a picture of that you know i'm trying to make a good picture of that i so i didn't get it and it, it didn't make it didn't make sense to me but i wasn't critical i i just i wasn't uh you weren't inspired by it i guess that's a good word i that's fair that's or certainly fair maybe you just felt no connection to it yeah i mean i I worked on Wall Street for four and a half years in a culture of 100% men, and here I am in an art school where probably 55% were women. I never even laid eyes on young women before this. I was working 80 hours a week. I mean, I had a lot of other things on my mind. I, was, I wasn't... It was all okay. Back then, there was there was a lot of talk of uh, gurus and uh, Maharashi, whatever his name was, and... And and a lot of drugs, you know, Timothy Leary and yeah, I've never smoked pot in my life. I've never taken any drugs. I've never you know, I didn't do it. I I you know, I came from a culture where you go to a bar and you have a drink, you know. I, I never even drank beer, really. No. Until I was, you know, in my thirties, forties and And really not still not very much. No, I don't no. drink beer. Right, I don't right. I mean I I drink yeah, whiskey. You know, that's what you do. You're supposed to drink with anyway. So, uh, which is a drug. Don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning it. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not taking moral high ground. But right. when everyone was being a hippie, I was a, a trader on Wall Street, a trading clerk, a senior trading clerk. So I had. I was doing my own thing, kind of let loose. It's like yeah, I was let loose in this uh, like a. What would you call it? A, a national park. You know, everyone, everyone there was a, a, a protected, if not endangered. They weren't endangered at all. Protected species. So any picture anyone made was going to be good. And if you wanted to be mystical and follow Gurdjieff, there was a professor for that. And if you wanted to be hard edged and uh, East Villagey uh, and, and do nudes and, and pictures of sex. There was another person. And if you wanted uh, to be like uh, Gary Winogrand, there was a person. If you, want, there was a per if you wanted experimentally uh, Jerry Yulesman or, you know, there was, some, there was something there. The, the program just blew up overnight. I mean, I was part of the thing blowing up. And it was a mad dash. Everyone was graduating from these schools, and then they'd look for a teaching job. And that. So, so nothing's changed on that. <laughs> yeah, well, that infuriated me because I realized immediately this thing that happened. The first wave in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, I didn't get infuriated till maybe 1974 when I left because you have to leave that, that assistant job. You can't stay there forever. I mean, you have to because you're supposed to grow out of it, right? So John Melisenda left and went to do nothing. I didn't want to do that. I left it and went into camera manufacturing. You know, I thought I'd make a living building cameras. But the the thing that bothered me was everyone was running to, to workshops and to uh, these schools that were around New York. And they studied with photographers that had been photographers, you know, whether they did magazine work or however they supported themselves, they didn't go to school for photography. And then those people graduated and they started teaching, but they knew the people that didn't go to school. Now, I don't know where we are. We've lost count. We, 
you know, we had people who were teaching who were taught by people 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 who never, never took a break from the system. They, they stayed in the factory. So you could also call it the academy, but it's the, the academy at least agrees upon certain, let's say, great books. But it's so splintered, um, not even now, but in, by the late 70s, certainly in the 80s it was. And so, you know, I place a lot of value on going to the source. I had an opportunity to teach when I got back from my Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, two friends of mine, Todd Papadroge, I think it was only three years at that point at Yale, and uh, Leo Rubenfein was going off on his... He had he got the Guggenheim same year I did, but he put his off for a year. You're allowed to defer. And he was teaching at School of Visual Arts, and he said, would you do me a favor and teach my class for me? Because you know, once you leave those spots, someone else jumps in. They don't give it back. And Leo knew I would give it right back. I wouldn't take it. You know, I wouldn't make a fuss. <laughs> so they each asked me to to teach a class, and uh, this was in the spring of uh, 1982. I was asked, and I knew I was going to Sicily to photograph. And I've told the story a number of times, so I'll try to remember it as accurately as possible. <laughs> so I thought. How in the world am I going to teach? I don't remember, you know, what happened that practice. I wasn't paying attention. So I called another friend of mine who just graduated from Yale, uh, Joe Lawton. I said, Joe, how do people teach up there? What do you what do you do when you walk in, you know, they walk in a classroom and then what do they say mm-hmm. to people? And he started talking about Richard Benson and because he was a teaching assistant for him and Todd, and I didn't know what he was talking about. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do is I have from now till I uh, go back to Sicily, I'll figure out a curriculum. And I didn't. I didn't do that. So I got to Sicily, and I was traveling alone, and I would think, drive all day, find a place to stay, usually a furnished room, a pensione or something like that, 2 or $3 a night I was spending back then. And I'll be alone, and uh, instead of reading a book or something, there was no television in rooms back then. So uh, I'll write a kind of teaching manifesto and come up with a, a curriculum. But uh, at the end of the day, I'd be loaded. I would just, I'd have dinner by myself, and the wine was so good and so inexpensive. I was floating, and <laughs> and it was hot, and there's no air conditioning whatsoever. So I, I, I'd wake up the next morning thinking, all right, well, I'm driving around, I'll think, because you know, in, in the car alone, it's very rural, and no radio either in these cars. Hmm. So uh, I'm singing the whole time. I mean, I, I, I sing to myself constantly, so I'm driving around... Uh, you want to hear one of the songs? I yes, said, oh, please. <laughs> we're, we're all mic'd up. Let's go. First the farmer sows his seeds. Then he stands to take his ease. Stamps his foot. Claps his hands. Turns around to view the land. And you're supposed to act that out. I learned that in grammar school. <laughs> and I sang that for hours at a time. That's great. I was delirious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was completely delirious. <laughs> It always sounds like a drinking song. Right? So needless to say, I did no work on teaching. So I thought when I get back, 
I have to develop the film, make prints, and I'm going to be back in August. And I'll do it. So I didn't do it. But I had a plan. It was a two-hour train ride to New Haven. I thought I'll do it on the train ride. And from Grand Central to 125th Street, I fell asleep on the train, which I did every single time for the uh, six years that I was there. And when I woke, they woke me up in New Haven. I thought, well, it's a 20-minute walk. I'm sure I could figure something out. But uh, I didn't. And I walked into class the first day, and I did exactly what I do today hmm. because I didn't think about it. <laughs> I, only, I only, I teach the way I look at my own photographs. I expect of my students in photo one or seminar or MFA, I expect of them what I expect of myself. Everyone starts out with a camera with a piece of film in there and the aperture that hasn't been exposed. That's how you start. I'm, I don't start in a more privileged position. You don't need a yacht or a helicopter or a submarine or a legacy. You start out with nothing. You start out with, and if you leave it alone, that's, I'll go back to cover of uh, The Waters of Our Time. I just took the pictures I wanted to take. And I think everyone should. I, just, I think that's what you should do. But you should be able to tell us what the picture is about and then tell us why you're saying that. Not why, because your heart's in the right place or because you ascribe to a philosophy or a religion or there was a time, you know, there was, you have a right because you're the same gender, you know, you root for the same team. I don't know how people, you know, the picture has to answer the question, you know, why? Why am I here? Meaning the picture's asking, saying, like, why am I here? Yeah, there's the answer. I'm here to give you this. At least give you the opportunity. We all know, we all know how truly subjective the whole thing is. But you know, because of Gary Winogrand, for instance, and Todd, I don't want to throw uh, and Paul McDonough under the bus. Todd Papageorge. I, Todd Papageorge, Paul McDonough, Gary Winogrand. There was, they would always talk about Mozart. You know, they're talking about Mozart. So I joined the Deutsche Grammophon uh, record of the month club. I started listening to Mozart. I can honestly say that there's a direct result in my photographs. Direct. I photographed a certain way because of all that Mozart. I, I think it rewired my brain. And I was never able to have a conversation with the other guys about Mozart because I never knew what they were talking about. I had my own experience. So I, I could never sound smart. They sounded smart, but I never listened to the music and got what they were talking about. That, that's not a criticism of them. No, no, you had your own relationship yeah. to the music. I don't, I, it seems like I recall you saying at one point that Gary was really fond of either the even or odd numbers, and you were fond. No, that's, that was, that was uh, Beethoven, the big uh. arguments about the, first ni about the nine symphonies. <laughs> you know, there were heated arguments, heated <laughs> arguments about that. Well, that's the end of part one of our season finale with Thomas Roma. We'll be back next week with part two. Remember, you can follow us at Real Photo Show, and that's good for Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Bye. <laughs>